really grateful all of you are in here. Um, testament one, let's go ahead and jump on in. Um, I'm going to hold off on introducing who I am. I want to introduce the class first and then kind of progress as we go on. And in that process, I, I want to hear from you as, as well. Um, uh, just because it's that odd season still, by all means, do as your conscience permits with a mask. If you want to wear it, go for it. If you don't, I think that's policy here at uh, Gateway. I'll probably be on and off with it. Um, just kind of voice where I'll, I'll be, but by all means, do as your conscience uh, permits on that. This image right here, has anyone ever seen this picture of Christ? Is this a familiar image to anybody? This is a, this is a very, very famous image called Christ Pantocrator. It's a 6th century image. 6th century image in a monastery near Saint, uh, uh, Mount Sinai. So we're in Egypt. We're in 6th century. And one of the things you're going to get out of this as well, we're going to bleed over into early Christianity a whole lot as we study the New Testament. If we're in the 6th century, what are the big controversies that we just had. Chalcedon. What happens in Chalcedon? Some might call it Chalcedon. It's Chalcedon. 451. Right, so 451 is 5th century. This is a 6th century painting. Here's what I want you to do with the image. Is it to Christ's? Why? Why do we have two type of facial expressions in this person? Why do we have two different types of facial expressions here? You can see it. You put a, you put a line right down here. The left side is something. The right side is something. Uh, which side looks more pure? This side. Right? Eyes are clear. No wrinkles. This side looks like what? He's had a really bad day. Fatigue, tired. We're in the we're coming out of the fifth century. Chalcedon talked about the two natures of the sun. It's an attempt to portray Christ with the two natures. There's far more going on in this image. Anytime we see that insignia around the head we should already be thinking divinization. Now, divinization looks different depending upon who the person is being depicted. But obviously here, we know Christ is divine. But what is very intriguing is that it's a portrayal of the human son with two different facial Expressions, and we're coming right out of fifth century controversies. Cyril of Alexandria in Egypt was part of the leading figure for Council of Ephesus 431. Council, he dies just before Council of Chalcedon 451, where they debate the two natures. This is in 
monastery in Mount Sinai, just right outside where that controversy would have taken place. Already from the get-go, right? Already from the get-go, here's a major assumption that you'll be feeling the entire time. When we read the Gospels, we're reading about a human, but we're sort of not reading about a human. When we read the Gospels, we are reading about God made flesh. Incarnation. Incarnation is a theological category. It's Latin. Incarne. Infleshed. And so when we read the Gospels, we're going to have this sort of feel that are we reading about kind of a broken human or are we reading about someone different? I think you already know the answer. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. It'll be both. We'll be both. I want to read this. This is nothing new to anybody in here. The Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. My, you probably saw them. My, my kiddos wanted to come with me on, on daddy's first night of teaching. So they're around here running around. But they, they asked me about, or they, they got a little bit of fatigue or nervousness because they have to go through tests. They have to do tests with their own school. So they looked at me and they said, will you have tests? I said, yep, there's going to be one tonight. Sermon on the Mount. I know we've all heard it, but why is the Sermon on the Mount so vital for the Christian faith? It is the first and longest recording that we have of Jesus. How does it open up? You know this. It's the Beatitudes. You know this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? They're going to be comforted. Blessed are those who, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They get to see God and not die. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. According to Matthew, this is the first big public appearance of the son, and it's this what he says. Blessedness. What is blessedness? What is blessedness? It is quite interesting that when we're in the first century world, blessed carries a type of meaning, as a type of overtone, if you will. It echoes back. Psalm 1, someone recite for me Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the one who what? Does not, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the one who does not stand 
in the, in the presence of kind of scoffing, blessed is the one who does what? The one who doesn't sit the seat of scoffers. What's fascinating, Psalm 1, teachers would what? <sighs> sit. It's a progression, Psalm 1. But rather, blessed is the one who does what with the law? Meditates on it day and night. And then he uses an image. David uses an image in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who meditates on this. Why? You'll be a tree. You'll be a tree. Your roots run miles deep. And tell me this. Does a tree bear fruit all throughout the year? The answer is no. But what does it always do? It bears fruit in its season. The idea of blessedness finds its roots. Psalm 1, blessedness will even find its roots in a Greco-Roman philosophical world of the happy life. The first sermon of, of Jesus is, what is the happy life? It's cars going fast, big boats, big houses. No. It's actually poverty. Poverty in your spirit. That's the happy life. Happy is the one who does what? They mourn. I don't know if anyone in here is in ministry right now. I'll tell you what. This has been the hardest pastoral year that I have ever walked in. Talking to other senior pastors in that I'm connected to, they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, looking back, saying this last year was the hard. Okay, there's been a lot of mourning. But guess what? That, that actually is the happy life. The ones who cry is the happy life. Why? Because you actually receive the comfort of God. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. This term is used often in training horses. How does a horse become meek? Still, it's calm. But you know it has a whole lot of power. Blessed is the one that sort of knows how to kind of act in a controlled way, almost. And look at all of the recipients of the reward. Kingdom of heaven, comfort, inherit the earth, satisfaction, receiving mercy. Number eight gets me. Number eight gets me. John tells us, we actually see it in Israel's story, no one sees God and lives. But the happy life, the happy life is those who are pure. Why? You actually get to see God and you won't die. And then persecution. Blessed are the ones who are persecuted. What an odd line 
to appear in all of this. And what happens to those who are persecuted? Do you not see the inclusio? Poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted receive the kingdom of heaven. One of the themes we'll see in the Gospel of Matthew, the Latin term is called imitatio, imitation. So fascinating how Matthew retells his story. What Jesus teaches, Matthew depicts him imitating. We'll we'll see it frequently. When we get to the Matthew lecture, we'll actually walk through various examples where we'll look at a few things that Jesus is instructing about, only then to look at other examples in the book of Matthew, and you actually see him doing it. For example... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Ask this question. Where in the gospel of Matthew did Jesus hunger and thirst? We're in chapter five. Where do we see Jesus doing this? Bingo. Chapter four, Jesus is where? He's in the wilderness being tempted. Turn these stones into bread. We're actually watching him. Fulfill what he's even instructing about. Each of these items we could then walk through and actually see how Christ is the complete fulfillment of what he teaches. I think that's the strength of a good teacher. What they say is who they are. Why are we imperfect communicators? Tell you why. Today you probably sinned. Today I did. Tomorrow you will too. But blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. That's the happy life. That's the happy life. So fascinating. So fascinating. That of all things Jesus could have talked about, he talks about what's the happy life. It's the first thing we see him talking about. It was a few years ago. It's a few years ago. Um, you, you will feel this all throughout the course. You're gonna all take these little nerd, these little nerd trips in our times. Has anyone ever seen this before? Just familiar to anybody? <clears throat> My wife and kiddos did two things. We were able to take a trip to Ireland. It wasn't just a random trip to Ireland. Like, how awesome would that be? Uh, I had double duty. I was out to go visit one of our global workers in Finland. um, And it happened to coincide with two academic trips that I needed to take. Needed to head out to Durham for something, and I needed to head to Helsinki for um, an academic conference. This is in Ireland. Uh, This is called the Book of Kells. Book of Kells. It is a beautiful, beautiful manuscript. Able to lay my eyes on this in person. It was an incredible moment. Why does this matter? In my PhD time, I had one of my mentors pull me in and ask me to write 
uh, part of a book that he was working on, Patrick of Ireland. Patrick of Ireland is known as one of the first kind of more kind of explicit uh, Christians who did mission. What's very fascinating about Patrick of Ireland is that he's not Irish. He's actually British. As a young man, he is pulled over to Ireland and he's converted out there in Ireland. He talks about praying a hundred times a day. In his confession, confession is a, is a common kind of way to tell an autobiography. In him telling his story, he talks about himself as a simpleton. Ego Patricius Rusticanus. I am Patrick, the most rustic. He's embarrassed to even write his Latin. He's embarrassed to even begin talking because he, in the beginning of his confession, he says, if I continue writing, you will know that I'm dumb. And then his next line, it's a confession of Nicaea. It's a confession of a Trinitarian confession that then anchored his theology. And then it's the story. He's 21 when he comes back to Britain. His father's a deacon. His grandfather's a deacon. So what does he do? He jumps into the church, not necessarily to serve the church, but to receive training. He says, if I'm ever going to go back to Ireland, which I really want to do, I need to be trained. 40 years old. Learning Latin for the first time. 30. Learning how to speak. That would be like you being captured at age 10, taken to a different country that you don't speak English at, only then to return at age 25 with a whole lot of broken English. Why is Ireland important? Patrick is a simpleton. He's an absolute simpleton. By academic standards, he's a dummy. What does he end up doing? He goes back to Ireland, brings the gospel to Ireland. And by the time he dies, he sees thousands converted. Why is this image important? Because it's actually the testimony of Patrick. We're about 100 years removed from Patrick. This is the most beautiful, beautiful full codex that I have ever laid my eyes on. I think there's one more that would rival it. Here we are in the sixth century, and this is the opening to the Gospels, this picture. It is so, oh, it's beautiful. Top left, describe it. What's in the top left? What's in the top left? It's an angel. Is it an animal? Is it a person? What's going on there? Yep. <clears throat> What's in the top right? It's not an eagle. Eagle's going to be down here. It's most likely a calf. 
recognized as a calf, but describe it. We just talked about this in the image before. Why in the world a halo? It's divinizing this creature. We're going to talk about that in a second. Then you have tons of vein, uh, 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 wings on it. Bottom left, what do we have down there? Sorry, I'm so sorry. This is a lion because down here is the calf. Top right is a lion. Bottom left is a calf. Describe it. It's essentially the same type of image. It's, it's essentially four of the same images, but what is unique in all four of them? It's the face. What's the bottom right? It's an eagle. It's an eagle. This is something we're about to talk about in lecture one. Something we're about to talk about in lecture one. This fourfold image becomes a stable fixture to describe the four Gospels. Oh, what, why, where, and really? Augustine talks about these four images and says, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew begins with Jesus in a genealogy describing his humanity. Augustine then talks about there's a voice crying out in the wilderness. Mark 1. Why a calf here for the Gospel of Luke? Why a calf? Luke 1, 2, and 3 is kind of a very tension-filled story if you read it as a narrative, not knowing what's next. You have two women, side-by-side, side, pregnant, and the Holy Spirit has come to both, and we sort of don't know which one's the Savior. But it does take place in a temple. Then we have an eagle. Why an eagle? For Augustine, John flies to the heights to depict the sun. These four images run rampant all throughout early Christianity. So much so that we see it in Ireland. We're going to see this in France. We even see this in Egypt and North Africa hippo. Jonathan Pennington. This is a name I want you to become familiar with. It's a book you will be reading. Come on. I can get the quote down there. There's a reason why the fourfold gospel has always stood at the head of the New Testament canon. And why the gospels have always been so beloved. He gives his answer. It is because in them we encounter the risen Christ in person. We learn not just about him and what he theologically accomplished for us and what we are supposed to do as a result, and I love this imagery, but we get to see the sweet lion and the roaring lamb in action. 
loving people, showing compassion, teaching and discipling and rebuking and correcting suffering and ultimately dying for us. I am sure that your Old Testament classes were great. I am sure next spring when we take New Testament 2 will be great. I have a special place for New Testament 1 in my heart. It is the sole class that we get to look at the full life of Christ for about 15 weeks. And we'll see this all over the place. We'll see this all over the place. Yes, the scriptures are rich, are thick. Yes, I'm sure you looked at the syllabus and had what we used to call syllabus shock. It's overwhelming what I'm asking of you. But I hope we don't lose sight of what we're doing ultimately. We get to see the roaring lion and the sweet lamb, and we get to see the sweet lion and the roaring lamb. Okay, let's figure out what we're doing in this class. Let's figure out what we're doing. At the end of this, I really am wanting you to be able to navigate through the scriptures. That's priority one for me. At the end of this class, I need you to know what is in the four gospels. Yes, we're going to have an eye to other portions of scripture. Yes, you're going to feel it. Even today, we're going to have an eye towards early Christianity. We're going to have an eye towards uh, ancient Judaism. Why? Part of that is also the New Testament happened in the first century. I actually want you to feel that. But at the end of the day, I need you to be able to spout off what's in Matthew 2, what's in Matthew 5, what's in Matthew 11, what's in Matthew 16. Why is Matthew 24 to 25 so vital? What's in Mark 2? What's in Mark 2 that's not in Matthew 3? These are the kinds of things that I want, I want us to begin walking towards. At the end of the day, I want you knowing the scriptures. Why? Some of you will become academics. Some of you will end up in the church. You're going to feel that type of vision all the way through this class because I want to try to catch the bug of some of you. Maybe THM is for me. Maybe PhD scholarship is for me. Or, you know what? I, I just really want to be faithful to a local church and minister and minister well. We're going to have both of those wheels running, but both of them have got to have their feet anchored to the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. Your scholarship is quite weak. If you don't know the scriptures, you should not be in ministry. We're going to situate the Gospels. I want us to grow as good readers of the Gospels. I think what we'll probably do is we'll probably hit week five or six, and you're just going to be like, I haven't heard. Why haven't, why haven't I figured out how to read the Gospels like this before? It's going to be really fun, and and I will I will see it on your eyes when sort of those 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 scales fall off for the first time. I saw it with our uh, uh, our taught in Greek last term, and I you could you see it each time where 
they're, they're like reading the scriptures anew. You're familiar with the Beatitudes. There's going to come a point where those Beatitudes turn into something new for you because you're, you have so much more to draw from. And I want you to learn how to function as a minister, as a leader, interpreting the scriptures for the life of the church. So we will talk a lot about emotional health, spiritual health. Here, let me introduce me. My name is Dr. Wilhite. We're an hour into class. Welcome. I'm so grateful you're here for New Testament. Uh, we have a lot to do. Really grateful for that. Let me give you brief background. Who am I? Where am I from? Uh, I am from the Lord's country, uh, Southern California, the true South. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's only one state more Southern than us, and it's Florida. But um, uh, like I mentioned, my family is here running around somewhere. They just wanted to be, they wanted to be with me on my on the first night of teaching. I, I love it. They'll probably come in a couple of times. My, my daughter enjoys coming with me. Um, full-time professor at CBU. Uh, full-time professor at CBU. I also pastor at uh, Redeemer Baptist Church in in Riverside. Over the full course of my life, I think I've pastored maybe 10 years, maybe eight years total. Um, I did my PhD in New Testament at Southern, um, and then navigating a second PhD in patristics at Durham. Um, so you'll feel both of those loves kind of come out, a love for the New Testament and a love for early Christianity, patristics. I already talked a little bit about Chalcedon in a New Testament. We're going to do that more. We'll, you'll feel that um, as, as we keep uh, kind of diving in. I love coffee. Let me, let me say that again. There's Folgers. There's Starbucks. There's, I don't know, our local coffee shop. And then there's coffee. <laughs> I love coffee. I don't know if you roast your own. There was a season where um, we were totally tight on money. And so I could get maybe about five pounds of green beans for about 15 bucks. So our house constantly smelled like that. Like it's a very sweet, bitter, odory uh, kind of smell because I, I, I wanted coffee. And so I'd roast my own in our kitchen. <laughs> Man, oh, my poor wife. Um, I've uh, been married 13 years. This uh, We um, married in August, have two kiddos, eight-year-old and a six-year-old. Love them to death. Love them to death. I am, if, if you were to kind of swing kind of a few hats, what, I, like, what would define me? Um, an academic, some type of minister of the gospel, and a family man. Those are the kind of the three big things that I feel like my life just revolves around. Um, love cycling. I don't know if there's any athletes or people that are active, but I love cycling. Um, yeah, that's enough about me. Um, and I, I will look very much look forward to getting to know you more as, as we go along. Someone already asked a question. What is Socratic dialogue? Guess what? You've already felt it. We've been doing it. Where I ask this question and I get your mind kind of going and then we'll banter back and forth. That right there is Socratic dialogue. We'll be doing that. Uh, quite a bit. 
Um, these are a number of my values. When we step into the classroom, what are some big things that I assume? Uh, I want ministers of the gospel um, to actually be intellectually informed. I want them to have mental capabilities and equipping capabilities so that when they step into context of ministry, there's already some kind of competency for you. So I, I'm going to be pretty stern on the types of sources that you use. Um, and I've, I've highlighted those where we've, where we've gone on. And, and part of it is, is that when you step into ministry, I actually want you using good sources uh, to help you study, to help you prep. Uh, second, I want us to become emotionally whole persons. This is um, items we'll continue talking about. Um, spiritual health is really important. Um, if there's anything this last year has revealed, oh, man, we're tired. We're vexed. I'm sure you're tired. I'm sure you're vexed. I'm sure there's some hurts. Um, but let's minister to one another as we, as we navigate those items. Ideas never should stay ideas. Ideas should never stay ideas. But it's actually for you to then integrate back into society for then the good of society. What you learn in here should make the world better. What you learn in here should integrate into you and then you step into a world and make the world better. I hope, I hope we in this develop deep affection, deep love, love and affection. If you can get kind of two pillars in your mind, the local church and global mission. I hope we're stirred in our, in our own soul with affection for Christ. How do we love Christ and not love the church? How do you love someone's husband and then hate his wife? It's hard, but it happens. It happens. How many people do you know that say, oh, I love God. I hate his church. No, 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 no. I'm sure you've been hurt by the church. I, I, I don't doubt that. Oh, goodness, I don't doubt that. The church is hard. Um, it's because there's imperfect people trying to read and understand the scriptures and speak on behalf of God. It's really difficult. What are the books we're using? Uh, would you mind holding that one up right here, this white one? Yep, that's it. Make sure... That will be our primary text, Strauss, second edition. Uh, second edition will be great. Really grateful second edition came out. I've been using this first edition for years. It's, my, it's actually my first term using second edition. I'm really happy about that. He's a tremendous, uh, tremendous scholar. Jonathan Pennington. This was my New Testament professor. Um, this book right here, I remember where I was at, when I was at, uh, uh, when in the day I was at, when I was reading this book, and like I mentioned, the shackles just fell off. And for the first time, I felt like I was reading afresh. And it was through this book and in conversation with him. Um, so really grateful to be able to read that book. Chuck Hill. Uh, Chuck is a delight. Um, Chuck is one of those. Okay, so let me back up. 
when you are jumping into ministry, whether it be local church ministry, whether it be missions, whether it be scholarship, it's really important for you to have about two to three mentors. Uh, two to three mentors where there's no pretense and they get to speak into everything in your own soul. Um, I don't have that relationship per se with Chuck. Chuck is a North Star for me. And this, here, here's why. I have never met uh, a man that is more competent in text criticism and more competent in the first, second, third century world, and yet pursues zero notoriety. I'm sure this is the first time you're hearing of him. Um, and serves his church. I, I look at that and I think that's actually who I want to be. That's my dream. And so um, this book right here is really uh, insightful. A lot of the first couple of our lectures, it will sound a lot like this book. I want you to have an idea of what is in the first century, what is in the second century, what is in the third century in terms of traditions as we start thinking about the reception of the Gospels. In other words, how did the Gospels become Gospels that we have in our Bibles? Right? I don't know if we know that story. I think somehow we think, oh, God spoke, fell down, and it put in the book. No, it's actually really complex how it got all put together. This book really helps us. Not that I want you to own this, but if you are looking to buy another book, by all means, I uh, would highly recommend this one, but you should be able to have access to this in the Gateway Library. I've talked to the librarian down there. It should either be on hold or in the reference area. Dictionary, don't think in terms of Webster's Dictionary where you look up a small word and there's kind of like, no, 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 no. When it comes to theological dictionaries, it's a term or a phrase in about a thousand word mini essay. It's really insightful for a quick, broad kind of introduction and a quick snapshot to, to something. It's a really insightful source, and I'm going to have you kind of navigate this book. Uh, so you'll become familiar with this book, but it should be accessible to all of you in the library. Uh, let's keep rolling. There's a couple of items that I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about everything. Um, I'll leave it up to you to be able to read through these items, but there is something. This right here, reflection questions on the Gospels. If you look on Canvas, you should already have Matthew and Mark. You should already have Matthew and Mark. Uh, it's where I just ask just broad questions. For every book, you are going to do two items. Let me back up. For every gospel, the four books, you'll be doing two items minimum, giving the chapter titles to every, uh, to every book, and then I'm going to have you structure the book. Structuring looks at the 50,000-foot flyover. What's the makeup? What are the movements that this book per, uh, uh, provides? Um, when we get into Matthew, uh, it's the first move that is kind of uh, jaw-dropping in, in, in many ways. And I, and I wanna see if you begin picking up on those items. It, it teaches us to become readers uh, at a big picture level, which is sometimes hard to do. Sometimes hard to do. In that, I'll ask many interpretation questions. So like, for example, interpret for us Matthew 16. If we know that built upon 
uh, uh, is the church built upon Peter? Is it built upon the confession? Is it built upon Christ? Like, I want you actually wrestling with the text, offering an interpretation. For Matthew, I have you do something with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I have you offer a structure of the Sermon on the Mount, pick one of those sections, and then actually develop teaching notes. If you were to step into the life of the church and teach this, what would that look like? And I already started to try to get you thinking in terms of this class is not just for your brain, right? This we I want I want to start pressing forward and giving you tools to then begin stepping back into the life of, of the church. Uh, but Matthew doing week four, Mark, it'll be a little bit smaller doing week six. Um, Luke. Uh, for week 10, Gospel of John for week 14. I do want to point out the exams. Just real quick, yes. Yep, go ahead. Is this class not live? The class should be live. And someone double check that. Go to modules. Yep, go to modules. And then under modules, I have the syllabi. I then have the reading, uh, those reading questions. And then underneath that, I have templates for you. Do you see this? Perfect. So you should now have access to both Matthew and Mark. Feel free, get started. Go ahead and, go ahead and start hopping on those. Um, I do wanna point out how the class will be structured. Uh, this is always, 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 always something to learn, especially when you have a new professor, professors structure this differently. I am assuming for today that you've already read Matthew 1 through 14. Now, chances are you didn't, and that's all right. I am assuming that aspect of it, but go ahead and just assume that the readings should be done before you come to class. You know what I will be lecturing on. I'm, I'm very particular with lecturing so one lecture is about an hour, hour to an uh, hour and a half of discussion. And so we're gonna, we're gonna drill on those kind of topics for the moment. Um, and then here at week seven is a midterm. So that means weeks one through six will all be on the midterm. By the time we get to the final exam in week 15, guess what? Only week eight and on. So kind of create the class in terms of like a have, right? So one to six is a unit, eight to 14 is our next unit. So on the final exam, I'm not going to ask you about anything of Matthew or Mark. Okay. Any questions that we've covered so far? Any questions that we've covered so far? I'm not a big fan of just walking through the syllabi. Hence, I like art. Let's talk about that. Uh, anything we need to discuss? Any questions that were raised in your own mind? Any items that we can address now? Go for it, Jess. No, it, of, of kind of our first hour together. Okay, let's take a quick two-minute break. Okay, stretch the... Uh, stretch the legs, get a drink, maybe use the restroom if we need to. Uh, it's 7.45. Let's come back at 7.48.